are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. I'm Tracy Diamond of Programs and Publications at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Thank you all for coming to the Pratt for the Writer's Live series on this beautiful fall night. Um, If you do want to move a little closer and pull some chairs down to make it a little more intimate, we can do that too. Just let me know and I'll help you out. Uh, Before we begin, I'd like to let you know about some upcoming programs Tomorrow, we have Colson Whitehead, and he'll be in Central Hall at 7 p.m. And then Thursday night, Deborah Spark and Jeff Becker, uh, two fiction writers, will be at Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped at 6.30 p.m. Um, but tonight, we have two intelligence officers, Ron Caps and Tom Glenn, that will, as Ron aptly put it on Twitter earlier today, Uh, will tell you the truth about their wartime work and read from their books. They'll both read for a period, then we'll have a joint Q&A. And this event is going to be podcasted, so I'll bring the microphone around for questions so everyone can hear the conversation when they pull up the podcast online. First, we'll have Ron Caps, the author of Seriously Not All Right, Five Wars in Ten Years, a memoir of his service as a soldier and foreign service officer in Rwanda, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Darfur. Seriously Not All Right is a memoir that provides a unique perspective of a professional military officer and diplomat who suffered and continues to suffer from PTSD. His story and that of his recovery and his newfound role as founder and teacher of the Veterans Writing Project It's an inspiration and sobering reminder of the cost of all wars, particularly those that appeared in the media and to the general public as merely sidelines in the unfolding drama of world events. So please give a warm welcome to Ron Katz. Thank you, both of you, all three of you. Thank you very much. Um, I usually spend... An, an enormous amount of time talking about this book when I'm doing a reading, and I'm going to uh, not do that tonight. I'm just going to do some reading and then take you through uh, what's in the book. Um, as Tracy said, I was a soldier and a diplomat. I spent about 25 years in government service, evenly divided between the Army and the State Department. Um, I served in Kosovo, Rwanda, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Darfur, and that's the way the book is sort of laid out. Um, I'm just going to do a lot of reading from this point on, really. But let me tell you that the first section takes place in Kosovo. It is my first experience with war. And as most war stories that have uh, the protagonist's first experience with war, the first instance where the protagonist is confronted with war dead is a very important moment in the book, so that's what you're about to go through with me. Yellow. Their skin was yellow. They had dirt under their fingernails and their feet were dirty. 
There were six of them, all women, under the tarpaulin. Some of them had lived long enough to have their wounds bandaged before they died. Some of them were killed more or less instantly as shrapnel or 7.62-millimeter rounds had entered their body. They'd been dead for about 24 hours. We knew this because we had come to witness their funeral, to witness and to stand a type of guard, for if we were present, the Serb snipers would not shoot at the family members as they buried their dead. It was the first time I had ever seen war dead. I remember being surprised that their skin was yellow. My experiences with death before that day had been limited to a few funerals. A friend's older brother, my grandmother, none of them had been yellow. So I was surprised at the color. It was the first time I had ever seen what dead people looked like if no embalming was done. What they looked like without makeup and a nice suit of clothes. They were just dead. Lying in a tangle of limbs under a blue UN tarp on a trailer that only a week before had carried peppers and corn to the market in Malashevo, only parts of their bodies were visible. I couldn't see all of their faces. One had an arm resting across her forehead. One had a bandage covering most of her head. One of the dead was missing. An 18-month-old child. We'd seen some dogs on the way up the trail. Morgan Morris, the dauntless UN Refugee Agency field officer who had led us to the scene, said what all of us were thinking. The dogs probably got the body. She was right, of course, but none of us wanted to be the one to say it. We had just seen the mother resting in a house in the village a couple of kilometers away. She had a bullet in her upper arm. The bullet had passed through her baby and then through her breast before lodging in her arm. The father said the baby was killed instantly. The bullet tore the child in half, he said. He had dragged the mother away to safety. A doctor from the Red Cross was treating her wounds in a small house in the village. There were ten women and a 72-year-old man in one stifling, airless room of the house. All of them had been wounded in the attack. They sat silently on the floor, their backs against the walls of the room, lost in their pain and their thoughts, waiting. What they were waiting for was someone to do something about what had just happened. These people had just been attacked. They were civilians. The attackers were the army that was sworn to protect them. And I drove into this village in a big SUV with an American flag on the side. And to them, I represented America. I represented the person who was going to fix all of this. And I'd been in country for about two weeks and didn't speak any of the languages, didn't know the history, didn't know the background. The villagers wanted to bury the dead in plain sight of the ridge line where we could still see the Serbian snipers. The land, they said, had been taken from them in the 1940s, and they had reclaimed it in the 1970s. It belonged to these people. They were going to be sure that the Serbs understood that. The women they were burying were born in this valley and had spent their lives raising crops in its fields and giving birth to their children in the small houses that made up the hardscrabble town. We parked our vehicles in plain view as a deterrent to further shooting. Certainly, the Serbs wouldn't shoot at an EU or U.S. observer or the white and blue UNHCR vehicle. Nonetheless, I admit I was shaky standing about at the base of the draw. The ground was hard, and it took some time to bury the dead. The men worked with shovels and picks for about an hour to dig graves for the women. Afterwards, we stopped on the way out of the draw and used our satellite telephone to call Washington 
and tell the State Department's operations center what we had seen. It seemed very far away from that hillside. The officer on the line was a colleague, a classmate, and a friend. Had it been someone else, I might have been more animated in my description of the scene, but Doug understood what was happening without my resorting to histrionics. Eleven wounded, ten women, and one 72-year-old man. Seven dead, six women, and one child. Yes, I counted them myself. Yes, we're sure they were dead. I verified it personally. I left out the part about the dogs. We made one more stop on the way off the hill. An old man flagged us down as we were leaving the draw for the village. And he told our interpreter he wanted to show us something the Serbs had done. I glanced through the window of the house and saw a group of women sitting on the floor, rocking slowly, comforting each other. They surrounded the body of another woman. She was laid out on her back and wrapped in a blanket. Part of her face and head were missing, and what remained was veiled in a colorful scarf. The man said a mortar round had exploded within a meter of her head. He held his hands out in front of his body to demonstrate the distance. The sitting women wailed in unison as he said this. He was the dead woman's father. Amid the crying and the smell and the flies, we listened to his story. Having felt safe enough in her house to remain there with her husband and children rather than moving up into the valley with the others, she had decided to take some food to her neighbors up in the canyon. She was at the base of the draw when the attack started. The mortar shells probably came in groups of three. Punk, 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 as they left the tubes and then the breathless, agonizing five or six seconds wait while they flew. And finally a brittle crump, 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 barking and echoing off the walls of the canyon as they exploded. The gunners probably set the fuses to go off about one and a half or two meters above the ground, about head high. It was an awful story. I couldn't wait to get out of there, away from the smell and the crying and the death. I felt outraged and horrified that soldiers would fire mortars at women and children. I had to look away. I concentrated on the color in the woman's scarf rather than her wounds. I watched the other women rocking, slowly rocking. I looked at the woman's father. My partner, Rob, photographed her body, and I took notes about what her father had said. Then we left. Now there were eight dead. Down the hill at the intersection marking Cynic proper, a town of women, a crowd of women and a few men had gathered. Some boys were sitting by the edge of the road with a wooden box filled with cigarettes, crackers, and chiclets. Entrepreneurs. They sat expressionless as a small crowd swarmed our vehicle. I pushed open the door and stood pinned against the truck by the crowd as my translator echoed staccato pleas for help. One woman pushed through the crowd and held her baby at arm's length in front of me. I was face to face with the child while the mother spoke deliberately but calmly. She wants you to take her son out of here so the Serbs won't kill him, Mimosa said. Mimosa's my translator. I looked at the woman and said to Mimi, make sure, he knows we, make sure she knows we can't do that. Say this, we're observers. We cannot relocate you or your son. If we do, the government in Belgrade will order all of us out of the country. I felt feckless and impotent as the words spilled out. For the first time, I understood the folly of being in a war only to observe a tourist among the victims. It was hot, 
And with the sun beating down on me, I felt cowardly, yellow, hiding behind my sunglasses. I waved my notebook at the Red Cross panel truck and said that was the vehicle that would take them to safety. I thought the Red Cross would probably refuse, but I was unable to muster the courage to tell the woman and the 50 other people crowded around me there was little hope she would get out that day with an international. I found out later I'd been wrong. Several UNHCR officers arrived late in the day, and one of them took it upon herself to evacuate some of the children to a safer village. Before we left, I went back into the house where the wounded were being treated. I had to tell the mother of that missing child that we didn't find her baby. It would have served no purpose to tell her what we thought had happened. I couldn't have found those words anyway. Later that evening, I drafted my report. It was about three pages long. No speculation, just the things we understood to have happened based on what we saw and what was reported to us. I said it appeared that a Serbian infantry unit had swept through the valley from north to south, preceded by a barrage of mortar fire. During the barrage and subsequent infantry sweep, seven women and one infant had been killed and 11 others wounded, including a 72-year-old man. Vehicles and clothes, food and other supplies were burned in the sweep. I said we'd seen no evidence of weapons or of any insurgent activity in the village or among the villagers. I didn't mention the funeral or the dogs. I didn't mention the woman begging me to take some action to save her children. I didn't mention the look on the old man's face. I carefully caveated what was told to us versus what we saw ourselves with qualifiers like reportedly and allegedly. I carefully made the people and the events in the village the center of the report rather than my actions or my feelings. Never star in your own report. I let my teammates read the report to ensure we all agreed with it. And then I turned it in to the reports officer. I had written a crisp, dry account of a messy, horrible act of cruelty. cruelty. And in doing so, I had documented my first war crime. So I spent two years doing that during the insurgency and after. I was supposed to stay in Kosovo for two months. I ended up staying those full two years. When I left Kosovo, I went back to the United States and um, was supposed to go to language training, and that was interrupted. I ended up going uh, back to Rwanda, where I had spent two years previously. I spent another two years in Rwanda, tracking down war criminals, excavating um, mass graves, and reporting on the insurgency that still was going on to the West. After Rwanda, I went to Afghanistan. During none of this time did I very, take very good care of myself. I was diagnosed in Afghanistan with PTSD. And let me read you a little bit about what that feels like. In the cold pre-dawn, I can hear generators running and vehicles moving on the other side of the base. But it's quiet inside my tent. None of the other soldiers I share the tent with is even snoring. I've been awake for a few hours, but I stay in my sleeping bag, fighting the nearly overwhelming urge to run away. The Taliban have launched a couple of rockets toward the base during the week, so we are all a little on edge, but that isn't what's keeping me up. I am bundled into my sleeping bag, trying to control my racing heart, and trembling because the dead have come to talk to me. They've been coming every night for a couple of weeks, the dead from Kosovo or Rwanda, 
beckoning to me, pulling me from a warm, comforting sleep into a series of wretched, tormenting, wide-awake dreams. Tonight, it's the dead from a farm near the town of Podievo. Burned Bible black and twisted into hideous, contorted shapes, they lie in a cold rain that falls to the burned-away roofs and pools on the dirty floor. Do you remember us, they ask? Most assuredly. The night before, it was the dead from the village of Rachak. Forty-five of them shot in the back of the head and left to die in that rocky ditch on a frozen January morning in 1999. They dropped by for a chat. Why didn't you do more to save us, they ask. Why indeed? Night after night, they appear on the big screen in my mind in oversaturated technicolor, writhing and imploring. Night after night, the murdered and mutilated come back. Each time, I am scared and ashamed. I know they aren't real. I know they are only images in my head. But I fear them no less for knowing this. They terrify me for what they remind me of. The fighting I didn't stop, the lives I didn't save. They terrify me for what they represent that I can no longer stop them from taking control of my mind. I lie on my bed, my bed, trembling, eyes wide open, but still seeing the dead in front of me. The trouble begins slowly and develops over time, and by the time I'm fully aware of it, I'm having graphic, violent dreams nightly. I wake from these dreams in a panic, shaking, heart racing, crying sometimes, always afraid to go back to sleep. I'm losing control of my brain, of my mind. In time, I start seeing these images when I'm awake. During the day, I'm unable to concentrate. I sit at my desk or go to planning meetings for operations, shaking until I have to leave the tent to go outside and get control of myself. I fear I've lost my mind, but I'm afraid to ask for help. I fear I'll be ridiculed and considered weak and cowardly. You see, in army culture, especially in this elite unit filled with rangers and paratroopers, Asking for help is a sign of weakness. My two Bronze Star medals, my tours in airborne and special operations units, none of this will matter. To ask for help will be seen as breaking. But when I can no longer control the images in my head, when in the middle of the day I am forced to hide, shaking and crying in a concrete bunker, railing against the noise and the images, when I realize that to continue to deny this would endanger the soldiers I was sent to Afghanistan to lead, I finally asked for help. So I asked my friend, Ed, who was the division surgeon for the 82nd Airborne, uh, to ask for help. And this is one of those things where you're standing there in front of a doctor and you're kind of, Shuffling your feet, like, yeah, maybe I should get some help. I don't really want to bother anybody, but, you know, just in case, you know, something goes wrong, I should have talked to someone. And doctors all have the same technique, if you've noticed. When you're talking to them, they're, they're checking you, they're, like, touching you. And so he's running his hands over my arms and stuff. And I realize that what he's doing is making sure that I'm sort of okay and that I'm not freaking out. And then he asks the question. He says, are you a danger to yourself or others? And this is a really critical question because everybody is walking around with a, an M4 and a bunch of magazines full of rounds and a 9mm on your hip and a bunch of magazines full of rounds. So if you were a danger to others, they would take your weapon away from you, which is a bad thing in a war zone. And if you're a danger to yourself, 
they will take your weapon away from you, which is a bad thing. So I had to answer, no, I didn't think I was. And I wasn't at that point. That would come later. I got the treatment I needed, and I made it home from Afghanistan. I left the regular army and went back to my civilian job at the State Department, and I lasted about four months before someone came and knocked on my door and said, hey, we're going to Iraq. Would you like to come with us? And I said, yeah, I'll go there. And so I went to Iraq, and I served there for a year, just under. And while I was there, I got a call from a friend in the, in the Army Reserve, and he said, hey, man, you're about to get mobilized to go to Iraq. And I remember looking around, saying, I'm here. Why? And so... I made a deal with the army. I said, I'll go somewhere else, but I don't want to come back to Iraq. So they sent me to Darfur. And I'd been in Rwanda during the genocide, or just after the genocide. I'd been in Kosovo during the ethnic cleansing, and now I was going into Darfur during another genocide where there were 300,000 dead and 2.5 million displaced. And I'm still not taking very good care of myself. And this is what happens. The only thing you need to know about this is I was in the capital of Darfur working with a UN mission on, I was seconded to the UN. And that town is called El Fasher. I was in El Fasher in support of a United Nations mission to organize and run a training exercise for the African Union peacekeepers. I was the scenario writer. The scenarios I'd written were roughly like this. A humanitarian emergency develops into a security crisis. Deal with it. A security crisis develops into a humanitarian catastrophe and includes significant press interests and bad weather. Deal with it. C, the kitchen sink of problems arrives sequentially, all to be dealt with. The staff had an officer on the UN team with us who had helped with the details of the scenarios. He had the plots and he knew the solutions. So he gave these to his colleagues on the African Union staff, and they still failed. I was failing too. I was falling apart, in some ways worse than I had in Afghanistan. I was deep into a bad PTSD episode. I was drinking myself into a stupor every night in an Islamic republic where alcohol was banned. And I was carrying on a clandestine affair with a UN official. The genocide was actually diminishing, but we had no way of knowing that at the time. What I saw around me was 300,000 dead and 2.5 million displaced. I had no real safety net to catch me, nor anything during the day to hold me together. I had very few actual responsibilities at this point, since the scenarios were already written. I was mostly along for a ride with the UN team. Despite this, I was managing pretty well until one very bad day. The woman with whom I had been having an affair for a couple of months asked me what would happen after our work together ended. We'd been at it for a few weeks, first in Nairobi, then in Addis, now in Darfur. We were having fun in nice hotels in Kenya and Ethiopia, and dodgy guest houses in Sudan, drinking and playing. But when she started making noises about next steps, that set off alarm bells in my head, dragging me back to the realization that I had a life outside this little war zone bubble. Soon I would have to go back to that life and to the reckoning. I obviously wasn't rational. 
Nonetheless, I was functioning at a pretty high level, writing intricate scenarios for a modern-ish fighting force, operating in the midst of a complex emergency, continuing to collect information about the status of the rebel force's disposition and actions, the government of Sudan's response to the insurgency, and writing reports for the embassy about what I'd learned. At the same time, I was carrying on the solicit affair. But in my head, I was convinced that my life was fucked up and all I was doing was hurting people. I had failed to stop the fighting in Darfur just as I had failed to do so in Kosovo and in Zaire. My writing sucked. My mom had just died. My marriage was a failure. I was a failure. Everything I touched brought pain to others. I wasn't getting better. I was getting worse. The dark stuff in my head triumphed over the rational workday reality. So I decided to kill myself. I did so quite rationally, I think. I thought about it through the morning, scripting the steps and timing, mentally locating the tools I would need and sorting out their acquisition, thinking about the aftermath, both immediate and longer term. By lunchtime, I had a plan. By mid-afternoon, I'd acquired all the tools. Late that afternoon, I began work. I grabbed a couple of beers out of the icebox, wrapped them in a T-shirt, put them on the seat of the Toyota. Earlier in the afternoon, I had gone over to the U.S. team house and borrowed a pistol from my Special Forces team sergeant. He loaned it to me, no questions asked, because we had worked together for six months or so previously, and he had no reason to suspect that I was anything other than a competent, professional career officer. I drove out of town to the west, somewhat dramatically, I realized, into the setting sun toward the reservoir. I pulled off the main road to the north side toward some small villages, just clusters of huts, really, and stopped the truck on a low rise, just high enough to see the sun falling toward the desert. I opened one of the beers. I started crying, but I don't really know why. I was filled with a sense of failure and frustration, a sense of conclusion. Nothing I touched succeeded. Nothing I did was good. I'd been through five wars in ten years and done nothing to stop the killing in Rwanda, in Kosovo, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, or in Darfur. I felt as if I'd reached a logical place in my life to end it. I opened the second beer. I picked the pistol up off the seat. It felt good in my hand. I felt surprisingly deft with it. I pointed it out the windshield with the magazine resting on the steering wheel and curled my finger around the trigger. I imagined pulling the trigger in the immediate pull the weapon would have would make as the sound fired. There wasn't anything to shoot at out there, so I would have just blown out the windshield. But even if there was something to shoot at, I was holding the pistol in my right hand, and I'm left-handed, so I probably couldn't have hit it. I put the pistol back on the seat. I remember a momentary flash of clarity. Who else would I hurt if I did this? My wife, certainly. Anyone else? My sister, maybe. I thought that what I was getting ready to do would leave a hole in some lives. I even thought about someone having to clean up the truck afterwards. Maybe I'd do it outside and leave less of a mess. But the clarity passed, and I was overwhelmed with a sense of futility and sadness. I had failed to stop the war. So many people were dead because of my failures. Images were rushing at me. The 45 dead from Rachak, the raped nun from Bunia, the man with the red-rimmed eyes and a mutilated family near Senek. I picked up the pistol and charged it, loading a bullet into the firing chamber. My hands were shaking. I put the beer down and took the pistol off safe. I was sobbing and talking to myself, to the spheres, to no one. 
The pistol was ready. I shifted it to my left hand. I looked at it in my hand, lying partly on my lap, pointed down a bit. I took a deep breath to calm myself. I was ready. Then the phone rang. It scared the hell out of me, and I jumped, startled. I almost pulled the trigger, which would have been highly ironic to shoot myself in the foot while preparing to shoot myself in the head. I looked at the phone lying on the seat of the pickup and saw that it was my wife, Maureen, calling from Washington, D.C. What was this? Serendipity? Karma? Luck? Uncanny timing? With my thumb, I put the pistol back on safe and laid it on the seat. While I talked to Maureen for a few minutes, I stared out through the windshield and watched the sun setting over the rocky brown desert of Darfur. The ringing phone had broken the spell. After the crying and the shaking, the moralizing and justifying, the calming of hands and nerves, the intense focus on the immediate act of charging the weapon, and then taking off the safety and preparing to put the barrel in my mouth, the ringing phone pulled me back from the brink. That afternoon, I gave the pistol back to my SF team sergeant and sent an email to my boss in Khartoum and said, I need to go. I've been here long enough. Um, we were coming up on 10 years that I'd been deploying to war zones and not taking care of myself. So I was medevaced home. I stayed in service about two more years, uh, some in treatment, some not. Eventually, I made my way to the VA hospital in Washington, D.C., where I was under treatment for a while. Uh, there's an interesting story in here about the first day there. Um, and since then, I've been on medication, in therapy, and working every day to let people know that it's okay to ask for help and that for the vast majority of us who have PTSD and who are surviving PTSD, we're going to be all right. It's the ones who don't ask that we can't help. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. It's a very powerful message. Um, next, we will have. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Next, we will have uh, Tom Glenn up reading from his new novel, The Treon Syndrome. Uh, Tom Glenn has worked as an intelligence operative, a musician, a linguist, a cryptologist, and a government executive. He is a reviewer for the Washington Independent Review of Books and the author of two previous novels, Friendly Casualties and No Accounts. In The Trion Syndrome, German professor Dave Bell is haunted by a half-remembered clandestine mission in Vietnam and the myth of Trion, the Greek demagogue. Dave discovers an unpublished novella by Thomas Mann based on the myth and believes he sees himself. Friendless, Dave is betrayed by his colleagues and accused of sexual harassment. He loses his job, his wife divorces him, and his children refuse to see him. At his lowest point, he has suppressed, his suppressed memory of what happened in Vietnam resurfaces. So please welcome now Tom Glenn.
I have to start off by telling you that I'm recovering from lung cancer. Had surgery last November after radiation and chemotherapy. I have been very sick. I'm recovering. I'm getting better. But yesterday I came down with a fever <laughs> when I knew I was going to be here tonight speaking. As it turns out, the fever went away and I'm here. The Tryon Syndrome, this book, comes from my struggle to come to terms with the unspeakable things that happened during the 13 years on and off that I served as a clandestine intelligence operative working undercover with Marines and soldiers in combat in Vietnam. I questioned whether men who demonstrated the kind of ferocity I did were even capable of love. I returned from Vietnam an emotional wreck after living through the fall of Saigon and escaping under fire when the North Vietnamese were already in the streets of the city. I had all the classic symptoms of post-traumatic stress injury. And by the way, Ron calls it disorder. I call it injury because to me it's very clear. This is a wound from the outside in. This is the soul that's being wounded. I had panic attacks, flashbacks, nightmares, all the stuff Ron just talked about. My marriage crumbled. I was afraid I was going to lose my children, and they were my reason for staying alive. So I resumed my study of German, one of the seven languages I have worked in. And in my search for healing, I went back to Greek mythology, which I hadn't looked at for years. And I went through it in detail, trying to find the wisdom that lay in, that, in those stories. In the process of all that, I rediscovered the German author Thomas Mann, who was one of my great favorites. And then Dave Bell, the protagonist of Tryon, took me over. I had to tell his story to find peace. I want to read to you the very beginning of the book, and then I'll get into some of the later parts after that. The Tryon Myth. Ares, the god of war, beheld a maiden washing herself in a stream. Overcome with lust, he plunged into the water and ravished her. The girl bore a male child, Tryon, who throughout his days would be afraid of water. Bent on revenge, the girl carried the infant Tryon to the city of Thrace to confront Ares. To her surprise, the god doted on the boy and taught him the secrets of war. Larger and stronger than other boys, Tryon grew to become a fierce warrior, renowned for savagery in battle. Indifferent to pain, given to brute force, and addicted to dominance, he earned the enmity of Hera because of his cruelty to the vanquished. He fell afoul of all the gods when, as the leader of the Spartan forces, he disemboweled his own infant son to demonstrate his ferocity. Aphrodite cursed him. He could never know love. At the peak of his success, Hecate sent the Eucharides, three female monsters, to destroy him. Tryon fled to Delphi and consulted the oracle, but refused to hear, heed her warnings to change his ways and make penitential sacrifices. The Eucharides trapped him at the mouth of the Strymon River, where it meets the Aegean Sea. 
there they drowned him. December 1996, where the Eucharist wait? He stuttered his hands in the moonlight. He could see the blood, but he couldn't see the blood, but it was there. Baby killer, they'd yelled at him. Butcher. He sloughed off the blankets. The cot wobbled under him. Cold. The shed wasn't insulated. He shivered in his sweat clothes, felt for his mucklucks, slipped them on over his socks. Through the window, he could see the Mackinac River, white in the moonlight between two shores of pale blue. To the north, before it disappeared around the bend, past the highway bridge and the railroad trestle, snow dusted its frozen surface. Farther south toward Winter Bay, the ice darkened, turned gray, then black, as salt water and tides melted it. How cold did it have to be for the ocean to freeze? A man wouldn't last long in that water. Fresh snow lay on the hillside, all the way down to the river. That was to be expected, old Nate said. Maine got the most snow in December, except for January, and February, of course. Dave moved closer to the window and looked at his watch, 4.20. He tilted back his head and closed his eyes. All he wanted was to stop the pain. He had killed their child. Then he'd left Inga. Her sobs rang in his ears, sometimes remembering hurt so much he couldn't think. He was heavy, heavier than Helen. When his body hit the water, it would sink. The destruction of Dave Bell, the man he'd come to hate as much as Chip did. The man who shamed his children. God could forgive him what he'd done. He couldn't forgive him what he was. Killer of children. The Eucharides awaited him at the water's edge. He found his boots. By the door, he put on his parka, gloves, stocking cap. Outside, the cold sliced through his gut like the knife he'd used. Good, let it. He stumbled down the hill toward the river, snow creaking under his feet. He saw a chip before him saying, no way. Jeannie, studying her ring, refusing to look at him, ashamed of him. Inga's weeping scarred his ears, lounding the frozen scream. The river stretched away from him, now gray in the moonlight. His boots crunched on stones and dirt. He stepped out on the ice, slippery, as it had been each time before. No cracking. After a dozen steps, he looked over his shoulder. Already the shore was far behind him. Halfway up the hill, the shed was a smudge among leafless, snow-lined trees. He turned south toward the bay. No smell, too cold. The ice darkened before him. Maybe they'd never identify his body. He carried no ID. Ah, wrong. His Ph.D. ring, his name was in it. Dread roiled in his chest. He quelled it. You go all the way through the ice into the deep water, old Nate had said, and it's all over, current. No way you can find your way back to the hole again. No man can last long in water that cold. Dave would sink like Helen's car, shocked by the cold, struggling not to breathe. Water sucked into his lungs a minute and 20 seconds. Then silence. He understood how Helen did it. He heard the crack before he lost his footing. 
He went down fast, freezing water in his ears and nose and eyes, taste of briny ice, the nerves in his belly screamed, his heart beat against his breastbone as if to break free, his throat locked like a vice. He tried to open it, suck in water, his boots struck bottom, his legs on their own catapulted him up, his head bashed the ice, faint light behind him, he twisted toward it, thrashed, reached, the hole. His hands grasped the the jagged edge. His face broke through the surface. His throat opened and gasped. Current pulled him toward the ocean. He grappled at the raw edge. It broke in his hands. He reached over it and spread his arms. Lie spread eagle, old Nate had said. So your weight isn't all in one spot. He inched onto the ice. It broke. He submerged, struggled to the surface, pushed his arms over the ice and shimmied. The ice cracked. He laid his cheek against the frozen river, spread his arms and legs, and listened. The cracking stopped. Wind his passage his exposed to ear. He tried to raise his head. His cheek had bonded. He tore it loose. Red flesh and bristles of gray beard clung to the ice. No cracking. He brought his arms to his body, tucked his elbows under him, and used them like crutches to edge forward. Still no cracking. He slithered north, toward the bridges, toward the white, away from the black. His leg muscles kinked. Wet hair stiffened into ice. After ten feet, he risked getting on his hands and knees, crawled another thirty feet, and knelt upright. So far, so good. He staggered to his feet. His clothes were rigid. He turned toward the shore. Up the hill, slipping, falling, his gloves were frozen when he fumbled at the door latch. He lurched into the utility closet, turned on the water in the tiny makeshift shower stall, and stripped. His clothes clattered to the floor. At last, the water turned hot. As he crouched under the shower head, ice fell from his hair and crackled to the plastic floor. Slowly, the quaking stopped, and the numb turned to pain. Coffee. Dressed in dry sweats and wrapped in a blanket, he shuffled to the cast iron stove, blew on the coals until the wood chips caught and added kindling. When his spit sizzled on the stovetop, he carried the coffee pot to the sink in the utility closet, filled it, and dumped fresh coffee into the basket. Hunched cross-legged next to the stove, he forced down hot coffee and surveyed his body. Everything worked. The side of his face burned, but he must not have been in the water long, two or three minutes. Every time he remembered, he started shivering again. What had stopped him? Shallow water. He'd hit bottom. Panic. Involuntary reflex. He was too much of a coward to control his body long enough to die. Maybe next time he'd do what Mons Tryon did, load his body with weights to drag him to the bottom and hold him there. He looked at his watch, stopped at 4.38. The alarm clock told him it was nearly 5.30. Christmas morning, merry fucking Christmas. Shaking his watch didn't make it run. One more chore, buying a replacement without explaining to Ed in the thrifty mart why he needed a new watch. He needed clocks and watches, gave his life the patina of routine. But when he was alone in the dark shed, 
when there was no routine. Shame came out of hiding. At that point, the book goes back almost a year and tells us how Dave got himself into this situation. He was having trouble. There was something in his past he couldn't remember. Something happened in Vietnam, but he couldn't recall what it was. His marriage collapsed. His wife divorced him. His children wouldn't talk to him. He was accused of sexual harassment. He lost his job. He had no money to pay the child support and divorce costs, so he decides to run away. He runs to Maine. He gets a job working in a gas station, and he lives in a storage shed. Then on Christmas Day, he tries to kill himself, which you just heard. A week later, on New Year's Day, a young man shows up at his door who tells him that he is his son, an illegitimate son, uh, the child of the woman that Dave had lived with in Germany. He had paid to have this child aborted, but apparently she didn't do it. Dave had left, and here he was. He proves to Dave, beyond any question of a doubt, that he is, in fact, his son. So Dave invites him to stay, and he does. His visa is only good for three months, so he can't stay very long. His name is Hans. He's very German. He does everything he can to persuade Dave to translate his successful book in English into German because Dave's German publisher very much wants to publish the book. And German, by the way, Dave, by the way, is bilingual, both German and English. But Dave keeps finding reasons not to do it. He keeps saying he's not ready, he can't do it, he can't get started. Finally, Hans sees to it that all the equipment he needs, a computer, a printer, dictionaries, paper, everything he needs are at his disposal. Most of it he borrows from other people. And then one morning, Dave wakes up and finds that everything is in place and ready for him to start translating. Dave trudged to the stove and poured himself coffee. Hans sat at the table across from the computer. Dave sat beside him. Please not to be angry, Hans said. Now your English goes to hell when you're stressed out. I apologize. I, Dave said, I, I, I know you meant well. I know Ariana means well. It's just that I, I, I don't think I'm ready, that's all. I want to help you get started, Hans said. I'm not used to having people help me. Hans brightened. I could help a great deal. I cannot type English, but I can type German. I have already capped the keys with the German script and reset the keyboard to software to German. Or if you would teach me about cars, I could fill in for you at Tracy's Texaco and you could translate full time. Mr. Tracy said it would be like getting two good men for the price of one. We could work together while I learn. Dave carried his co coffee to the cot. I need more time. You have no time. You don't understand, Dave said. Nothing will change what I am. Hans said, you are Dave Bell, a good man. Dave looked at his grease-stained hand. I am damned by what I am. I am my father. I am a child killer. I had Mons Tryon before my eyes. I was looking in the mirror. I have no shadow, no reflection. I am Tryon. 
Hans was on his feet, his face flushed. You are not Tryon unless you choose to be. You are not damned unless you surrender. Ungebent, unbeloved, unable to love. Have not Ariana and Horst and Helen and I loved you? Have you not loved me? Have you not loved Chip and Jeannie? Dave stopped. Don't talk about Chip and Jeannie. Oh, I am not allowed to speak of your legitimate children. Dave cringed. I dare, Hans said, coming from behind the table. I risk your fury to tell you the truth. You cannot escape your fate. You told my mother once that you could not live without sex. Now you are celibate. Did you not change? You are not Tryon. You are Herr Dr. David Bell, a wise man, a strong man, a loving man, a fine father. But now you choose despair. Dave leapt to his feet. That's enough. Not enough, Hans yelled. Don't you see you blame us, the people who love you, you say you're damned or ungament or despised, and now when time is running out, you say it's too sudden, that you are not ready. Hans paused, trembling, his face close to Dave's. Coward! You bastard! Yes, I am your bastard. God in heaven, you make me ashamed. Rage like lightning, Dave swung, his fist slammed into Hans' belly. Hans staggered backwards, clutching his stomach, and fell against the table. His feet lost traction, and he turned halfway, then toppled. His forehead struck the corner of the table before he hit the floor. He lay with his face to the floor, rasping for breath. Dave stood panting over him, his legs spread, fists still doubled. His muscles loosened. He brought his feet together and straightened. Hans was breathing again. He folded his arms on the floor and rested his forehead on his wrists. Dave fought off an impulse to run. He wanted to be gone out of this. Instead, he slumped on his cot. His pulse thudded in his ears and temples. Burned into his memory was Hans' face, bulging eyes fixed on Dave's in a mix of fear and pleading as if to say, please don't kill me, like those other eyes in a hutch in Langding. But these were eyes he knew, eyes he had known before he ever saw them. Coward, Hans had said, you make me ashamed. David ran away from the dead child in Launding. He had tried to kill his own child to escape what he'd done and fled Inga's anguish. He'd hid in the study rather than face Mary, his wife. Finally, when Helen died, when his job was gone, when his wife and his children turned on him, he hadn't stood his ground and fought. He turned tail. Coward. And now he'd committed the most unforgivable, most selfish of all sins, despair. David lost everything, maybe even Hans. The Eucharides still waited on the banks of the Mackinac. What could he do to make that shame go away from Hans' face? Slowly, Hans' breathing became quiet. He wiped his nose on the back of his hand and reached under the cot and dragged out his suitcase. He stumbled to the shelves and took his jeans, underwear, socks, and T-shirts to the suitcase and threw them in. What are you doing, Dave said. Hans went to the corner and lifted two suits and three white dress shirts from the dowel and carried them to the suitcase. Hans, I must return to Germany, resume my studies. Hans went to the utility closet. He came back carrying his toiletries. Blood trickled from a cut above the arch in his eyebrow. Wait, Dave said, you're bleeding. 
Hans put his hand to his forehead and looked at his fingers. Sit down, Dave said. Hans turned away, but Dave took him by the arm and guided him into the chair. Dave took gauze peroxide and band-aids from the shelf over the sink in the closet, cleaned the wound. Hold still, Dave said. It stings. Dave covered the cut with a band-aid. Won't hurt very long. Just stay put for a minute. Hans' lips trembled, but he stayed seated. Dave put his elbows on his knees. I'm sorry. Hans wiped his nose. I apologize. I'm the one who needs forgiveness, Dave said. Hans smiled. You have my forgiveness. You had it long ago, but the smile disappeared. But will you promise not to say bad things about my father? He got to his feet, picked up his shaving gear from the table, and tossed it in. You don't have to leave, Dave said. Hans scooped up the books Ariana had given him and laid them in. The suitcase clicked closed. Dave wanted to yank the suitcase out of Hans' hand. He wanted to tackle Hans like a quarterback, knock him out, anything. Maybe he should plead with him. He couldn't stand to lose Hans, too. Hans went to the utility closet and washed his hands and face. Next, he'd go up to to Nate's to phone for a cab. After half an hour, he'd put on his coat and walk out the door. Dave would watch him climb the hill. He'd become smaller and smaller in the distance until he disappeared into the trees at the ridge line. What could Dave do? He turned to the table to rest his face in his hands. The computer cursor blinked. He wanted to shatter the screen. The word processing software was already booted. What did Hans want him to do? With a groan, he hoped Hans didn't hear. He put on his glasses and read the first line of English text in chapter one of Leverkin. Adrian Leverkin is, before all else, like Thomas Mann, who created him, a man with a soul. He typed, capital Ein, double-spaced, indented, and typed, Adrian Leverkin is for allem ein Seelenmensch wie sein Schöpfer, Thomas Mann. Hans walked behind Dave. Dave could feel his breath as he read what Dave had typed. He straightened, kissed the top of Dave's head. Then he walked to the suitcase, knelt, opened it, and hung his suits back on the dowel in the corner. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.